Thank you, Mark. And thank you to everyone that uh, gave me a card. Oh, there are pencils coming down. If you need a pencil, just lift your hand up, and the ushers will give you a pencil for notes. Thank you so much. What a year it's been. It's been an amazing year. And I just want to tell you, church, I love you. I love our church. I love our church, but I love you. We don't have enough time to talk to each of you individually right now, so we're going to do this thing. But what an amazing year, and what an amazing uh, time we had just minutes before our gathering uh, right now. We had a congregational meeting. We elected new elders and deacons coming in. We welcomed just now uh, new covenant partners. My wife counted among them and, and my mother-in-law. So our, our, the, the knitting of our hearts and our lives together are pretty, pretty solid. So thank you so much for that. I'll look forward to, since the Seahawks are playing tomorrow night, I'll spend the afternoon reading those cards uh, today. All right, let's look at our, our series again, Jesus on Every Page. And we love to read the story of Jesus' birth, uh, his appearing in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But what if I told you there was bonus material of God appearing? More to the point for our series, what if I could show you records of Jesus sightings, God in the flesh, written hundreds of years before that not-so-silent night in Bethlehem? This series aims to do just that. We're going to look at it this morning. Throughout the Bible, the, the First Testament, the, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, God appears to his people and shows up. Why? Because God wants to dwell with his people. He wants to be in relationship and fellowship with his people. We see that from cover to cover. And that's not only a Christmas story, that is the story of God's story in all of Scripture. And so we read in John chapter 1, verse 14, John writes, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word there is tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. Does that ring a bell? When we think of a tabernacle, we think of a temple. We think of God wanting to be with his people, so he sent his Son but long before that, the Lord wanted to be with his people, and so he instructed Moses and the priests on how to build the tabernacle. And long before that, in Genesis 1, what do we see in creation? We see a tabernacle. A tabernacle is a place where heaven and earth meet, where God comes and meets his very creation. So from the very beginning of time, this has been God's purpose. So is it any wonder that we would see in throughout all of Scripture, not just in the New Testament, and not just in the stories of Jesus' birth, we would see God appearing. Now think about times that you've seen or heard of, of these God appearances in the Old Testament. Probably the most famous would be the burning bush, right? Pretty famous. Exodus 3, Moses is walking along and something catches his eye and there's a bush that's burning but it's not being consumed. And the Lord meets him there in that place and tells him to remove your sandals. You are on holy ground. Also in Exodus 13 and 14, we have the, the cloud pillar that's protecting Israel from the onslaught of Pharaoh's army. We see the pillar of fire at night that protects but also guides the children of Israel. We see that same cloud descending on the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40 once 
the tent was completed. And again, Nehemiah 9 and, and so on. When we read of supernatural happenings in some visual, visible, tangible form, outward symbols of God, we're talking about theophany. The word is theophany. Theo meaning God and ophany meaning appearing. A God appearing. A theophany, say that three times fast. A theophany is a manifestation of God that is tangible in a human sense. Visible appearances of God are throughout the Old Testament. And, and sometimes, sometimes they take on a human form. And so we look at Genesis chapter 12 and 18, the, the appearing before Abraham. He had a conversation. Genesis 16, the rescuing of, of Hagar. She's pregnant and alone and dying out in the desert. And someone comes to speak to her. Moses talked with God, hoping to catch a glimpse of the Lord God. Moses knew if he saw God face to face, he would be utterly obliterated. But he catches a glimpse of him passing by. And then in Job 38 to 42, think of all the, the questioning that Job had for God. And then 38 to 42, the Lord God has a few questions for Job, doesn't he? And he speaks to him out of the tempest. And so there are all these examples. Now, along with these examples of God's sightings, theophanies, there are more than 50 times uh, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, where there is one that appears with the title, the angel of the Lord. Over 50 examples. Now, the precise identity of the angel of the Lord uh, throughout the Scriptures is unclear, but there are clues to the identity of the angel of the Lord. I, I say him because the figure is described as a man. And so most famously, we would have Genesis 32, where Jacob has a, a wrestling match all night long with a man, right? Until he taps out and his hips get, gets thrown out of joint. Now, unlike other angels, an, an angel is a messenger from God. Unlike other messengers with a glorious message of God, the angel of the Lord in these 50-plus passages is a unique being in a class all his own. This angel of the Lord speaks as God, identifies himself as God, and exercises the authority of God throughout the scriptures. Now, we could rattle off a dozen or more of these examples to, to tease it out. The authors of the Old Testament did not think or understand of God in Trinitarian terms. This is progressive revelation as God uh, continued the, the revelation of his divine purposes uh, for the writers into the New Testament. But many Christian theologians throughout the history of the church have concluded the angel of the Lord is the, wait for it, the pre-incarnate Christ. That's right. Pre-incarnate, before he became human flesh the pre-existent Son of God. We have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God and three persons. This is He. Long before He came to Bethlehem, He was and He is and He will always be Emmanuel, God with us, God with us. So again, John, back to John chapter 118, says, verse 18, no one has seen God, right? God the Father is spirit, the Holy Ghost is spirit. 
but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is the closest as it, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This purpose of, of God to commune, to tabernacle, to dwell with his people. And the agent of that has always been the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God. What do you think Jesus was doing? What do you think the Son of God was doing for all those millennia, waiting, waiting till Bethlehem? Just twirling his thumbs? No, he was active. Active in the whole scope of redemptive history, the whole scope of God's story. So the Old Testament is filled with these manifestations of, of presence and extraordinary acts of power. And as I said, this angel of the Lord is in a class all of his own. He claims divine authority. He exhibits divine attributes. He performs divine action, and he readily receives divine honor. Other angels, we see this, you think of examples even in the New Testament of, of someone bowing down to an angel, and what does the angel say? What are you doing? Don't bow down to me. I, I'm just a messenger. But this angel receives that. Now, the title, Angel of the Lord, as I said, is seen many times, but he does not always go by that title. And this morning, we will see this pre-incarnate example of Christ, this Christophany, to be sp specific, takes on a different title. And the title is The Commander of the Lord's Army. There it is. So a little backstory to our passage. And those of you familiar with the Old Testament, maybe you are part of BSF and you studied it just a few weeks ago. We're going to be looking at the book of Joshua in just a moment. So a little backstory to the, the book, the story of Joshua. Israel is finally made to the promised land after 40 years in the desert. And the generation before Joshua's has sinned against God. So God's judgment on them is that this generation will not make it into the promised land. Nor will their leader, Moses, make it into the promised land. But this new generation that the Lord has led to this place and this time, led by Moses' successor, Joshua, they will enter the promised land. And the Lord God promises to Joshua, no man will be able to stand before you. The Lord God commanded Joshua to rally the armies, to prepare them for battle, to go up against their biggest fight in Canaan, to take the fortress city of Jericho. Now, I'm no military expert, but think about the sorts of things you would do before a battle like that. What would you be doing? Strategizing, planning, sharpening your your weapons for war. If you look at the scripture, just before the scene in Joshua chapter 5, instead of those kinds of preparations, it says here that this great desire to fight, it says that they reinstitute the covenant sign of circumcision and the celebration of Passover. Just, just bear with me for a second. Think about this. This is not something that militaries do but it was meant to remind them of their privileged relationship with God, signified by the circumcision and the liberation from, from Egypt by God, signified by the celebration of Passover. Imagine it, this fighting team of men and boys ready to fight, and they say, now before we fight, you're all going to be circumcised. <laughs> Can you imagine how vulnerable you would feel? <laughs> Instead of getting ready to fight, 
We're going to celebrate. We're going to commemorate our liberation from Egypt. We're going to have a party. And we're going to worship. And so the night before the battle, the passage we're about to read, before the war is going to happen, General Joshua is outside the city. He's checking out this, this fortress of a city. He's strategizing. He's thinking about the plans he has. He just wants to make sure that he knows what he's going to do in ordering his troops to attack. And the text says he has an encounter with a mysterious warrior. And with that, to honor God's word, let's stand together to read from the book of Joshua, chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Please be seated. Now, we see in this passage that the commander of the Lord's army has four commands. There are four commands in the, just these few verses that the commander of the Lord's army has for Joshua. And by extension, I see four commands that Jesus has for everyone in this room. And the first of these commands, when you encounter Jesus, the first command of the Lord Jesus, the commander of, of the ar army of the hosts of, of God, surrender. That's the first order to Joshua, and the first order we receive from the Lord Jesus is surrender. Look again at verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand, Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. The, the Hebrew there I love actually it just simply says, no. <laughs> just, just no. So, so Joshua is thinking, he's calculating, he's checking things out very closely to the wall of, of Jericho under the cover of darkness, and out of nowhere stands a warrior. And I imagine Joshua, by instinct, he goes for the hilt of his sword. I probably would have peed my pants, but he goes for the hilt of his sword. <laughs> and this warrior has a drop on him. He already has his sword out. And so Joshua's sort of defenseless, isn't he? He can't go on the offense or the, the defense. And so he asks, well, whose side are you on? Are you for us or are you for our enemy? Friend or foe? That's the only category Joshua can think of. Are you with us or with them? And the commander says, no, <laughs> neither. He doesn't answer Joshua's question if he's for Team Israel. And Team Israel's about to go in and take over this land from the Canaanites. But he also doesn't answer the question if he's for Team Canaanite. This mysterious man says, in effect, Joshua you are asking the wrong question. It's not whether I'm on your side or not. It's whether you're on my side. There's no middle ground. 
Joshua does the only thing that's sensible. He bows down. And so, friends, let me ask you, have you ever approached Jesus in the same way? With your own categories, your own uh, presuppositions. It's got to be my way or, or the, the wrong way, Jesus. Which side are you on? Are you my friend or my foe? Are you for me or against me? Have you ever come to Jesus that way? See, I, I, I only see uh, one of two options, Jesus. It's binary. It's, it's either yes or no. Give me the answer. I demand it from you. You're going to demand from the Lord? If you've been following Jesus for a while, let me ask you, when did you discover what it meant to be on his side? To take direction from him. Rather than him serving on your side first to say, no, I surrender to you, Lord Jesus. When did that happen? We sing about it every Sunday, don't we? We're singing about it. See, we can't take it for granted that we're always on the Lord's side. Only by surrendering to God can you count for him to be on your side. You have to first surrender. You don't have to be in the military to have a hard time with surrendering, right? I, mean, I think it's human nature. We, we don't naturally want to give in. If I was in the military and the commanding officer says, attention, about face, yeah, about that, about face. I'm not sure I want to go that way. Is that how it works in the military? Those of you who've been in the military, is that, can you just talk back to your commanding officer? Is that, does that fly? No, I don't think it does. <laughs> but we want what we want, don't we? We know what's best for ourselves. We've worked hard. We know our point of view. We have value. We know our position in this world. And we want things the way we want them. I think God is like this. And so obviously, this should happen, shouldn't it? Well, then God's against me. We make assumptions about God, and what do we end up doing? We ask the wrong question. We ask the wrong questions of God. God, how much do I have to do for you? What do I have to do to get you on my side? Joshua encounters God and, and asks, are you for us? Or against us, he has an agenda. We all do, don't we? We all have an agenda. God, which way do you line up on this issue or that? Answer me. And Jesus answers, no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. My sword is drawn, and I am here. And folks, I need to tell you something that will be bold. It's in bold in my outline here. The Lord God is not on your side. The Lord God is not on your side. God is not on man's side. God is on God's side first. That's why we call it grace. Only by God's grace do I receive what I do not deserve. And the only sensible, irresistible response is surrender. We can't assume whose side God is on. The question is, are you on God's side? Joshua is a soldier. He's a fighter. He has been to battle. He knows when he's beat. 
He wants to win this battle, and he knows the only sensible, irresistible thing to do is to surrender. So number one, surrender. Number two, the command is follow. Look at verse 14 again. He replied, neither or no. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And the most famous Protestant hymn uh, of, of, of the great uh, Martin Luther, a mighty fortress is our God. There's a wonderful line I want to point your attention to. You've not heard a mighty fortress is our God until you've heard Jonathan Della Santina sing it in German at the top of his lungs. It's amazing. This worship filling my house as he's singing in German. And so he translated for me. This is verse four of the great hymn. We've sung that before, haven't we? Yeah. Verse four, Lord Sabbath, his name from age to age the same, he must win the battle. It doesn't say he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Yes, we know Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. We've, we've talked about that. We've, we've preached on that. Dana Wooster has a, a compass point class on Sabbath rest. Yes, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. There's that love and care and communion, but that's not what he's saying here. Martin Luther is writing to a church to rally them to stand up against the powers and the principalities and the darkness of his age. And he reminds the people, translating uh, King's English uh, from the Hebrew, he's speaking here of God's host. He is the commander of the Lord's army. That's the very words that we sing in the history of our church. Psalm 148, verse 2. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. See, I told you there's great theology in hymns. Again, verse 4. The right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. And who's that man? Messiah Jesus. Not meek and mild, but the warrior, Lord Jesus, who commands you to follow him. So first, we must humbly surrender to the Lord. We surrender our will to his will. Lord, what's your will? What, what would you have of me? I receive your grace. And then what we receive from him, along with his grace, we receive orders and direction. And we open God's word and say, okay, thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. I surrender my life to you. You've saved me. Now, what is it you'd have me do? Oh, no. Oh, I'm not sure about this one. In 2018, this is, oh, no, wait, wait, that can't be right. Oh. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? Countercultural, to be sure, to follow the instruction of the Lord God in the pages of his scripture, but that's what we're to do. Now, if you continue in this passage in verse 6, uh, the writer of Joshua kind of gives away the, the, who's, who's speaking because he says the Lord then speaks to Joshua clearly. So it is the Lord is the angel that's, that's right on and gives him his instructions, his battle plan. What's the battle plan for taking Jericho? Those of you who've you've studied this, what's the battle plan? Hit him hard from both flanks? No. March around the city seven times and blow your trumpet. And then the walls will come down and, and you'll, you'll take the city. What? What? Does that sound odd to you? So you surrender to the Lord. Say, okay, I'm going to get serious about my faith for my sake, for my family. Okay, Lord, how, how am I supposed to do this? Wow, I'm not sure I can do this. This sounds to the world around crazy. 
But that's what he says to do. He's the commander. Why does he say it this way? Why not something sensible like, I don't know, shoot a tie arrows or, or wrestle a couple of dragons and have them blow? Isn't that, that works on TV, right? I don't know, just send the ramparts and, and blow something up. You know, this is long before uh, modern age, but come up with some bombs or something, right? Something sensible rather than marching around a city. Why does he do it this way? Because we'll know who wins the battle, won't we? Joshua and the descendants after him will know. They'll sit around the campfire. They'll tell stories. Who won that day? The Lord God won that day. How do you know? Look what he told us to do, this crazy thing, and it worked. And is that not true in our lives? We follow the Lord. Say, Lord, this does not make sense. I'm going to do it anyway because you're, you're commanding me to do it. We're hearing about it in church and small group. Get together with a friend for coffee, and they're giving me this advice. It's from your word. I'm going to trust that, that this is of you, oh God. We're to surrender. Second, we follow Number three, we worship. We worship. Again, verse 14. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord, my Lord, have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Joshua shows whose side he's on. He falls down and, and worships, and the commander accepts that worship. Just as Moses removed his sandals in Exodus 3, why does he remove his sandals? Why is it holy ground? Because the Lord God is there. He's meeting them. He's dwelling among them. He's tabernacling. Why? Because that's what God's always wanted to do, to draw near to his people. And God is the only one worthy of worship. There's so many things that people put ultimate value on. This is the most important thing in my life. This is the most important thing that, that makes me who I am. If this thing was taken from me, I don't know what I would do. We worship these things. Only the Lord God is worthy of such worship and adoration. He alone deserves worship because he is good. He's so good. So we surrender, we follow, we worship, and finally, the final command of, of, the, of the commander of the Lord's army commands Joshua and you and me to win. Win. That, that night before the, the war, the general, uh, Joshua, he's out scouting on his own, isn't he? He's strategizing, he's, he's figuring it out, he's up late trying to make sense, like how am I going to knock down this wall into this fortified city? When faced with a battle, with, with faced with the toughest odds, how do you act? What do you do? Just sit and worry, strategize, make phone calls. I'm going to get on WebMD. There's got to be an answer. What do we do? Don't we pull Joshua here? Late at night, middle of the night, you're, you're, you're just, your mind's just racing, thinking about it. And yet Jesus says, now I am on your side. You see, look, his sword is drawn. He, he's ready for a fight, isn't he? And he's ready to win because he's already won. He's already won. 
because the Lord Jesus took that sword on himself for you and for the world. A couple weeks ago, I told you about a podcast that David and I recorded with my friends Julian Smith and Jace Broadhurst, and I, I uh, praise both of these guys because they're dear friends, brothers, and PhDs in both New and Old Testament. And I quoted Julian, and now Jace, okay, here you go, Jace, I'm quoting you now. Gotta be, gotta be even with the kids, right? Here we go. I called Jace to understand the original context. How would uh, the Jews that were in, in exile, how would they have received the book of Joshua, understanding what was going on and the, the battles that they were facing. He says, the message of Joshua to these exiled Jews is surrender, follow God, set yourselves apart from Babylon by worship, by circumcision and Passover, which became passe. He said, no, 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 no. Do these things, worship God, and then God himself will be the commander of his army and he will give you victory over those Babylonians. He'll give you victory. That's the original context. What about for you and me today? If you surrender to the Lord Jesus, if you truly follow his lead, bow down, he will raise you up in victory. If it's not God's will, you can't force it. And if it is God's will, you can't stop it. Amen? Okay. So surrender to him. Suspend your disbelief. Oh, but everyone's telling me this is how I... No, suspend your disbelief. Surrender, bow down, follow his lead. And the Bible says, and we know, you can talk to your friends around us here, you will have real success. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, we'll end with this, says the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. He surely will. He's done it before. He'll do it again. He's doing it right now. Let's pray. So Lord God, we claim this truth from your word to surrender to you. Lord, we're just going to put our hands out, palms facing down, just kind of symbolize dropping our sword, dropping our weapons we can use words as weapons. We can use the kinds of gifts that we purchase or, or return at Christmas time as, as offensive and defensive weapons. Lord, we're just going to drop all of that nonsense and strategizing, and we're going to turn our hands upright and receive from you that which we do not deserve. Your grace afresh this day. Guide us, Lord, even if you call us to do something that just seems so out of the ordinary. We know that we ultimately have victory in Christ. Romans 1, 8, and 31, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Lord, may your presence and power, Emmanuel, God with us, be evident in our lives today. If any here are struggling, Lord, we are in that fight right now. We pray that they would come and join our prayer partners at the end of this service to receive a blessing from you. We pray in Jesus' name. And we pray, I want to pray as, as you toss have prayed, Lord Jesus, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts 
as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to sing.